You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. Well, guys, good morning. It's, um, it's so great to see uh, all of you here again. Um, and uh, as people are rolling in, uh, of course, wanted to uh, remind everybody that we will be taking communion um, later in the service. So if you need to grab uh, elements, whatever you'll be using for your bread and wine this morning, um, go ahead and grab those. And this has been another interesting week, as always. Uh, <laughs> always finding ourselves in a, a new and more bizarre place. And um, this is also a leading into a, a week of great change um, here in this country. Um, and as I've been thinking about it, particularly in light of kind of the turmoil that we've seen um, uh, in the capital and kind of the, um, the struggle uh, that uh, so many, that the states have been warned about um, for what might happen during and leading up to inauguration ceremonies. It reminds me, of course, once again, how tremendously divided um, we find ourselves. Um, and so that can be really complicated. It's tragic and yet I'm hopeful that um, we're moving into a space now where we can be drawn more closely together. So I know that we have celebrated uh, here in this community victories in Georgia and the upcoming inauguration uh, of the Biden-Harris administration. And I wanna remember at the same time that that unity doesn't come just from the top up, um, that it's the thing that each of us get to um, take part in. Um, so whatever that looks like in the middle of where we find ourselves, I know this is really complicated things. I just wanna know, uh, or I just wanna make it aware that um, uh, Central Avenue Church will continue to be a space for us to talk about those difficult conversations and difficult relationships. Um, and we'll continue to be a place looking forward in hope and recognizing the complexity of where we are. Um, so thank you guys for being a part of this community and doing church here with us. Um, this morning, I uh, wanted to open us in prayer um, by sharing a prayer from Reverend M. Barclay. Um, Max and I have both shared things uh, from them before, and uh, they're a really, a really powerful voice, I think, for a church like ours. Uh, they came from a very similar um, background uh, in evangelicalism that many people here in this community uh, came from as well. Um, and carry some of the same struggles and wounds that many people in this community do as well. Um, and uh, Reverend Barclay is a amazing voice of advocacy in the church and is uh, a, uh, a minister in the Methodist church, um, but doing really great things to kind of unify and connect the church overall uh, in openness and inclusion. And so 
Um, I wanted to share this one, particularly in a difficult year where so much has been going on because it's a, a calling for us not to do more, not to be more, not to forget what's happened, but just to be still. Um, so would you join me in prayer this morning? Come and be still, says the holy. Linger in love's presence. Let striving cease. Accept what is for what is. All is held in sacred embrace. Here, your pain is honored. Your loss is acknowledged. Your struggle is neither dismissed nor inflated. It rests in the web of shared existence, cruel and beautiful. Eventually, love will ask more of you. Honesty, change, commitment, compassion. But in this moment, feel the nearness of the source of life itself, tender and fierce. Know that the infinite embrace you and all, Know that the infinite embraces you in all the ways you are essential and not. Let your chest rise and fall to the rhythm of eternity's breath. Slow, gentle, consistent. God, thank you for these words from Reverend Barclay and for the work that they're doing to create a church that's fully open to all people. Loving God, we wanna be still before you in a year that's brought more change and challenge than we could possibly imagine. We wanna be still to stop and breathe. We often yearn for busyness and distraction, reassurance and healing for growth and change. But this morning we ask for stillness, acceptance, your sacred embrace, for we are your people and this is your church. Amen. In the light of kind of recognizing where we are and uh, and being still. Um, I wanted to share with you, uh, instead of a responsive reading this morning, um, this is a modern retelling of the Beatitudes. Um, and uh, I, I found it to be um, really hopeful and really honest and really raw. And um, I hope that you do as well. And this was written by Reverend Anna Bladell. <laughs> Blessed are you who are raging. Blessed are you who are mourning. Blessed are you who feel numb. Blessed are you who feel sick and tired and sick and tired. Blessed are you who refuse to turn away. Blessed are you who need to turn away. Blessed are you who keep breathing deep. 
Blessed are you who are tending to your own needs. Blessed are those who are tending to the needs of another. Blessed are you who have been calling. Blessed are you who have been organizing. Blessed are you who have been testifying. Blessed are you who have been hearing. Blessed are you who have been resisting. Blessed are you who feel broken, open beyond repair. Blessed are you who are raw beyond words. Blessed are you who are working hotlines and crisis care centers and bearing witness to the force of violence and trauma unleashed and unloosed. Blessed are you who are marching. Blessed are you who are weeping. Blessed are you who preach and know that divinity resides in despised, abused, violated flesh. Blessed are you who know deep in your bones that you are good and beautiful and beloved and sacred and worthy and believed and held and capable of healing beyond your wildest imagination. Blessed are you who remind others that they are good and beautiful and beloved and sacred and worthy and believed and held and capable of healing beyond their wildest imagination. Blessed are we when we dare to dream of a world without sexual violence, without white supremacy, without misogyny, without police brutality, without anti-trans and anti-queer violence. Blessed are we when we stay tender. Blessed are we when we stay fierce. Blessed are we when we dare to imagine repair and transformation. Blessed are we when we labor together to make it so. This is the word of the church. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Bob. Always um, find their uh, prayers and readings um, just a beautiful juxtaposition of what we're trying to embody. Um, so thanks for sharing. Um, as uh, Bob um, mentioned, we are going to be taking communion. So if you haven't grabbed anything, here is your 20-second warning um, to grab something nearby. Um, you can use whatever you have. If you're new with us, um, we just use whatever we find in our own homes um, and around us and take it together as the body and as the blood. So feel free to grab something um, if you have it. Uh, this morning, I'm going to read um, a poem by Langston Hughes. Um, many of you are probably familiar with the poem. If not, you're at least familiar, at least um, with Langston Hughes even if in the recesses of your um, elementary school, high school, um, hopefully you got to read some of them. He's um, a brilliant um, black poet from the early 1900s. Um, so as you probably all know, tomorrow is the celebration of MLK Day. Um, MLK's birthday is January 15th. Uh, he would have been 92 this year which um, is remarkable um, to me um, 
that's in some ways still very young, right? He's, um, although 92 is not <laughs> typically a young age, it's quite possible that if he had not been murdered by white supremacy, he might um, still be with us. And just as we, uh, as we reflect and as we talk and meditate on, again, where our country is at, um, not just in the last couple of weeks and not just in the week ahead of us, but where we've always been, um, I just want us to be really intentional about naming the demons um, that continue to plague America's soul. Um, and one of those is white supremacy, and we um, we don't we don't like hiding that um, here, and it's important to name. So I'm gonna um, in in light of that, in light of it being MLK weekend, when you will probably hear really quaint and pleasant platitudes making MLK seem like this beloved. Um, pastor who just, you know, makes you feel comfortable and helps you believe in a dream. Um, I want to remind us that he was deeply hated. Um, he, um, his approval rating, so to speak, um, when they, the equivalent of what they were taking at that time was in the teens um, for white Americans um, during his lifetime. And it's really only been recently that um, his memory and his message have been embraced um, and in many ways co-opted by those who wish to make him um, their own heroes. And we, of course, are guilty of this ourselves. I am, of course, guilty of this myself and trying to uh, smooth out some of the rough edges. Um, but what MLK did is he took the biblical witness, the gospel of Jesus and the prophets, and he pointed it directly at us and America and named um, the, the release of the captives and um, the breaking of chains that um, we demand to keep um, upon ourselves and upon our black brothers and sisters and um, brothers and sisters of color um, and indigenous um, uh, neighbors as well. So I'm going to read a, a prayer. Um, well, we can let it be our prayer. I'm going to read a um, poem by Langston Hughes. Uh, called Let America Be America. Again, um, as a heads up, there are some um, out of date uh, words and phrases and language. I don't think any of them are technically inappropriate, but I do just want to name since this was written um, in the early 1900s that even Langston Hughes, um, a, a black poet, um, has some words in here that might be uncomfortable. So I just want to name that. Um, so hear these words. <clears throat> let America be America again. Let it be the dream it used to be. Let it be the pioneer on the plain seeking a home where he himself is free. America was never America to me. Let America be the dream the dreamers dreamed. Let it be that great strong land of love where never kings connive nor tyrants scheme that any man be crushed by one above. It was never America to me. Oh, let my land be a land where liberty is crowned with no false patriotic wreath, but opportunity is real and life is free. Equality is in the air we breathe. There's never been equality for me, 
nor freedom in this homeland of the free. Say, who are you that mumbles in the dark? And who are you that draws your veil across the stars? I am the poor, white, fooled and pushed apart. I am the Negro bearing slavery scars. I am the red man driven from the land. I am the immigrant clutching the hope I seek and finding only the same old stupid plan of dog eat dog, of mighty crush the weak. I am the young man full of strength and hope tangled in that ancient endless chain of profit, power, gain, of grab the land, of grab the gold, of grab the ways of satisfying need, of work the men, of take the pay, of owning everything from one's own greed. I am the farmer bondsman to the soil. I am the worker sold to the machine. I am the Negro servant to you all. I am the people humbled, hungry, mean. Hungry yet today, despite the dream, beaten yet today, oh pioneers, I am the man who never got ahead, the poorest worker bartered through the years, yet I'm the one who dreamt our basic dream. In the old world, while still a surf of kings who dreamt a dream so strong, so brave, so true, that even yet its mighty daring sings in every brick and stone and every furrow turned that's made America the land it has become. Oh, I'm the man who sailed those early seas in search of what I meant to be my home, for I'm the one who left dark Ireland's shore and Poland's plain and England's grassy lee and torn from black Africa's strand I came to build a homeland of the free. The free? Who said the free? Not me. Surely not me. The millions on relief today, the millions shot down when we strike, the millions who have nothing for our pay, for all the dreams we've dreamed and all the songs we've sung and all the hopes we've held and all the flags we've hung, the millions who have nothing for our pay except the dream that's almost dead today. Oh, let America be America again, the land that never has been yet and yet must be the land where every man is free, the land that's mine, the poor man's, Indians, Negroes, me, who made America, whose sweat and blood, whose faith and pain, whose hand at the foundry, whose plow in the rain must bring back our mighty dream again. Sure, call me an ugly name you choose, the steel of freedom does not stain. From those who live like leeches on the people's lives, we must take back our land again, America. Oh yes, I say it plain, America never was America to me. And yet I swear this oath, America will be. Out of the rack and ruin of our gangster's death, the rape and rot of graft and stealth and lies, we the people must redeem the land, the mines, the plants, the rivers, the mountains and the endless plain, all, all the stretch of these great green states and make America again. Hopefully you can hear some of those themes, um, some phrases that have been so twisted into ugliness and hatred and racism. Um, and I think, Langston Hughes um, is able to put and name exactly a truth that so many of us are unwilling 
to face. Um, so this week, as we look to a presidential inauguration and not just any presidential inauguration, but one that's already been marked by violence um, and white supremacy and one that is surrounded by threats of violence and white supremacy, um, I take Langston Hughes' words as a call, um, as a prayer um, for those of us who believe <laughs> um, that America still can be, yet never was. So with that, would you join me in prayer? <clears throat> Loving God, we ask um, that you would show us what it means to be the body of Christ. God, that you would show us what it means to be in communion with those who claim your name, yet um, whose actions and words and beliefs look nothing like us and nothing like you. God, may you show us our own actions and beliefs that look nothing like you. May you help us, God, to commit to creating a world, creating a country, God, that pursues justice over a profit, that pursues love um, over hatred, that pursues um, release, God, of the captives, of the prisoners, of the oppressed, um, over advancing ourselves, um, making more money, owning more land, building more buildings um, that will always leave us, God, ultimately unsatisfied. So remind us of our calling to be the people of God. Remind us that in some way, as we take the bread and the blood, that in some way we take a step towards building our own um, community. In the words of Dr. Martin Luther King, God, may you show us what the beloved community looks like and then move us, God, step by step towards realizing, towards building a beloved community that cares for each other, takes care of each other's needs, lifts each other up and points each other down the path, God, of progress. So this morning, I invite you, whatever it is you have, leftover Christmas cookies, coffee, plum wine, um, Cheez-Its, iced tea, whatever it is, I invite you to take as a commitment uh, the bread of Christ and the blood of Christ um, as a commitment to build a better world. Amen. And next up, Angie, do you, we have some announcements this morning?
Good morning, everyone. It's a light week. Um, so as usual, the gathering is Wednesday at 7.30 and philosophy is on Thursday at 6 p.m. via the Zoom link. Um, and then just a reminder that if anyone needs any resources right now, please reach out to leadership. We'd be happy to help. All right, thank you. Thanks, Angie. So does anybody have any prayer requests? Um, now is the time to share our joys and concerns. You can always unmute and raise your voice or just if you prefer, you can put it in uh, in the chat column. And Erica, I saw you uh, immediately uh, come on video and raise your hand. So <laughs> please go first, Erica. Um, one of my um, my like main professor from college, um, he's currently battling a really rare form of leukemia right now, um, and they just uh, did a GoFundMe for it, and they raised all the money that they were asking for wow. within a day which is great, but if you guys could keep him in your prayers, that'd be great. Yeah, what is his, what is his name, if I may ask? Um, Troy, Troy. All right, let's pray. Loving God, we lift up Troy and uh, this terrible diagnosis of leukemia, and we give thanks for the support of friends and family, maybe people he, he doesn't even know, uh, that have uh, provided financial support for what I'm sure is going to be an extremely expensive ordeal, but we pray for his health, is holistic well-being, body, spirit, soul, and mind. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Erica. Thank you. Um, and then Rodney, I saw you post in the chat column here, prayers for friends in Virginia, the Blackstock family dealing with adult son Jeffrey, who has Rasmussen's encephalitis, looking for a miracle healing comfort and God's will be done. And we join you in that prayer, Rodney, in Jesus' name, amen. Um, Somebody else? Hey, Aaron. Hey, May. Um, I have a little, um, it might seem like a little joy, but it's a very big joy for me. Um, I wasn't sure where it was going to go um, with the things that my mom believes, but she has decided to get the vaccine. And it's a huge relief for me um, because there was a lot of, there was a lot of tension around it. So um, I'm very relieved. Wow. Yeah, that's, 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 uh, I know that's big news. And uh, we rejoice with you about that. That changes the whole dynamic for you guys. I know that. And um, yeah, great. Thank you, May. Thanks. Other, other thoughts, um, joys, concerns. Hi, Aaron. It's Isabel. Hey, Isabel. So this is like a total freak thing that's never happened before. But anyways, I thought I'd share with us with, with uh, my church here. Um, so last night, Kurt and I were we decided to come down to San Diego because Kurt's birthday is this month. So we had some time away from the kids and we're like, OK, we'll come down here at around one o'clock in the morning. We hear like a fire alarm <laughs> going off and we think I don't know what we were thinking. We didn't think it was real. It was real. Oh, it was no. real. The the room right next to us caught on fire. Whoa. <laughs> so we were standing outside for like three hours. I mean, two hours last night. Uh, thankfully, everyone's okay. The, everyone evacuated. Um, the fire department arrived. Uh, they put it out. And, um, you know, Kurt and I are fine. And all the other guests, kids, animals, um, you know, we're all okay. But, you know, I just wanted to say a prayer of Thanksgiving this morning um, for, for 
you know, first of all, that we're all okay. And secondly, um, that, um, you know, we had the help we needed yesterday, especially in this COVID crisis that we're in that people stepped up and there were, there were, there were anyways, but we're kind of in shock, obviously, but we just wanted to reach out to the community and, and be, you know, just have that little prayer of Thanksgiving today. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Let's, we'll join you in that. Will you give thanks for Isabel's safety, the safety of uh, Kurt as well, and all those uh, at that location that were under threat from this fire. And we give thanks for first responders and just those that show up to help. And uh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Isabel. Uh, anybody else this morning want to share something? Hey, Aaron. Hey, Anthony. Uh, I just wanted to pray for my friend uh, Kiki. Uh, her and her, like her whole family, like COVID has been kind of going through. So they, they've all gotten it and they just lost her father. And uh, that's, that's pretty much it. Just want to pray for them. Yeah, let's pray. We lift up Kiki in this uh, incredible hour of grief and difficulty as the entire family is uh, apparently suffering from COVID uh, and, they're, and they're grieving the loss of um, her father. Um, and we pray for their holistic well-being. We, we pray for their health that they might make a recovery, but we pray that they might be comforted in the hour of their grief in great need. We pray for all those in our lives um, that we know, whether it be friends, family, or acquaintances, that are suffering from COVID or are experiencing loss and grieving the loss of a loved one. We pray for their well-being. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, amen. thanks, Anthony. Well, with, with that, um, Max, I think I'm gonna hand it over to you. Yeah, thanks. I just have a uh, short video to share today, music video um, by Sam Cooke.
somebody keep telling me don't hang around it's been a long a long time coming but i know a change gonna come oh yes it will then i go Say, brother, help me, please. But he winds up knocking me back down on my knees. Oh, there have been times that I thought I couldn't last for long. But I know a change gon' come. Oh, yes, it will. Thanks for that, Max. So in the wake of so much political violence happening in our country right now, and the potential for more leading up to the inauguration this week, I thought it would be a good idea for us to talk today about our stance on political violence. I don't know if we've ever talked specifically about this before. We've talked about violence and nonviolence before, but uh, you know, the current circumstances would warrant this conversation being revisited, I think. Um, I have friends on the left who have mixed feelings, I'll say, about what took place at the Capitol the other week. They were like, bad ideology, but good idea. They wish the left had the commitment and courage to do something like that, seize the Capitol building and show those in power that we, the people, are not going to take it anymore. What if what happened at the Capitol was done in the name of racial equality or done in the name of fighting fascism? Would that change how you felt about the violence? Would we think that would be like Jesus cleansing the temple, or in this case, cleansing the floor of the House and the Senate? I think it's an interesting question and a timely question. And so I want to talk about what is our stance on political violence, and how does our faith or our Christianity come into play, if at all? I want to begin by saying that I don't believe we can simply turn to the Bible even to the gospels in order to find what our stance on these matters should be. I think people often respond to these dilemmas and say, oh, I, I have a Bible verse for that. So I don't need to wrestle with these matters or think critically because I have a Bible verse. This is what's called validation through versification or proof texting. Not only is that kind of, is it, is that a kind of myopic way of thinking? But I also don't think the gospels were intended to be read as a system of ethics. I don't think the gospels were intended to be read as a system of ethics, but rather an invitation to think critically about love and justice. I think we should see Jesus's ethical teachings 
as not a new Decalogue, a new Ten Commandments, as it were, or a new set of ethical principles to always follow no matter what the circumstances are, but rather I read his ethical discourse as a way of jarring us into rethinking our concepts of justice and righteousness. In fact, I think Jesus's ethical teachings had very much the same subversive function as his parables in this regard, like the parable of the Good Samaritan, the rich man and Lazarus, uh, the parable of the laborers in the, in the vineyard. The uniting theme of all these parables was how they interrupted people's expectations and created a break where another reality could come to exist, aka the kingdom of God. These parables had a jarring effect. Again, I don't think the goal was to simply give us new rules and new ethics, but to call us to think critically about what justice and love look like in our context and how it might be radically different than what we expect, what we're used to, or what our culture says. For this reason, Peter Rollins and others like to say that Jesus was unethical and unwise. But unethical and unwise uh, because he went so against the accepted wisdom and ethics of his day. His ethics were unethical in the, in the world's eyes or to his contemporaries' eyes. Back then, to be ethical meant upholding the law and, and passages in Leviticus that say things like an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. For Jesus to say, or for Jesus to, to go against those ethics and say, no, love your enemy and don't return evil for evil. This was seen as a kind of, as kind of unethical and unwise, a kind of startling reversal of things. It was a way of saying the path of justice is not so simple and you have to think deeper about it and maybe, maybe flip things on their head. And so that's my starting point for this conversation about political violence. We must ground our thinking in the question, what does the path of love, liberation, and justice look like in my context, rather than, you know, what does the Gospel of Matthew say, or, or Paul's epistle to the Corinthians, or God forbid, the book of Leviticus. Um, so, you know, with that in mind, I want to talk specifically about our circumstances today. One of the things I'm hearing is this comparison of what happened at the Capitol the other week with what happened over the summer with the George Floyd protests, in the sense what I'm hearing is, is that if we're going to repudiate one, we must repudiate the other because they're both equally you know, violent and unjust, which completely disregards so much of the differences between the two events and their causes, right? Which we'll get into. And yet I think there are some, I think there are some similarities. <coughs> Excuse me. I need my coffee. I think there are, are some similarities in the way the far left and the far right use violence sometimes. And I think it's important for us to be honest about that and carefully consider what's just and what's not. And I'm not saying that we're going to come up with all the answers because we're most certainly not. But I find myself, personally speaking, unable to support either the right-wing violence that took place at the Capitol last week or the burning and the looting of random businesses by those on the left that took place last summer. I don't think either acts of political violence achieve a just end. I think we can say that without overly comparing or equating the two events or the motives of those involved. But the problem is I think a lot of people are taking this opportunity today to reinforce this false idea that the far left and the far right 
are really just the same thing and, and are you know, equally evil and racist and we should therefore completely repudiate both when they're not the same. I don't know about you, but I keep hearing this, this horseshoe analogy. Maybe you've heard this horseshoe analogy before, which says that the political spectrum is basically a horseshoe or, or a circle. The further you go in either direction, the closer you get to the other side until the differences basically evaporate. And while I don't disagree that the violent tactics of the far left and the far right can be similar sometimes, the actual goals, the actual values and ideas of those two positions are, are totally different. Right-wing fascism in America is rooted in racism, religious fundamentalism, and capitalism, to be you know, kind of uh, brief about it. Left-wing radicals want a society that is basically the opposite of, those, of all those things I just listed. They are not the same, and it really matters. And the horseshoe analogy really obscures that. And I think it's used on purpose uh, as an attempt to obscure it and avoid having to actually wrestle with these complex differences and the weight of them. And I also want to say today that any discussion of political violence, in my opinion, needs to take seriously the different power dynamics often at work in right-wing violence and left-wing violence. Power dynamics really matter because it means that all, not all violence is the same. For example, often we're told that Political violence looks like a group of angry protesters smashing the windows of a bank. But we're never told that what the bank does is violent, how it destroys people's lives with predatory lending practices and crushing debt. You never hear massive corporations described as violent who refuse to pay people a fair wage or a living wage. You, you never hear the healthcare industry described as violent in the way that it denies people healthcare coverage or bankrupts families. To be clear, those systems are violent on a level and in ways the average person is, is not even capable of. That kind of violence operates on a level of power most people do not and cannot hold. So in order to truly understand violence, we have to understand the different power dynamics of violence and how not all violence is created equal and how sometimes smashing the windows of a bank or clashing with police in the street is not nearly as violent as as what those powerful institutions are doing to people behind the scenes. For this reason, we need to be careful not to disempower oppressed people groups by overly criticizing certain forms of violent resistance. Violent, res violent resistance against oppressive governments and oppressive institutions is sometimes justified and can be the only means for some people to liberate themselves. I think when well-meaning middle-class white folks in particular criticize people of color for engaging in violent resistance, it can come from a place of privilege and naivete and actually be disempowering. It's important for us to acknowledge the history of white calls for civility and nonviolence while people of color suffer economic violence, police violence, and other kinds of violence we may not see as you know, traditionally violent. To repudiate their violent response when, when their lives and their children's lives are on the line is, is very problematic in my opinion. Sometimes it's not up to us white liberals and white progressives to judge them. Sometimes the burning of a cop car is not without its merit. Getting back to the differences in power dynamics, I think there's a big difference between people using violence to maintain supremacy and power over others and those who use violence to liberate themselves from such oppression. 
right-wing violence often comes from a place of supremacy, right? And the fear of losing that supremacy. It comes from a place of deep fear that the values that define middle America are being displaced by multiculturalism and secularism. Their fear is that their so-called you know, traditional American values like you know, Christianity as the pseudo-state religion, nationalism, patriotism, militarism, traditional gender roles, traditional marriage. They're afraid, they're, they're afraid that they're losing this kind of America, this, this 1950s vision of America, which they believe is the one true America, an America where one culture is really dominant, this kind of middle America white culture. And so right-wing violence is, is not about an oppressed people fighting for liberation, even though they think they're oppressed, right? Which reminds me of something I think John Stewart once said, just because you don't always get your way doesn't mean that you're oppressed. <laughs> just because other people, other religions, other genders, other sexualities, other cultures have equal rights doesn't mean that you have less rights. It just means that you don't get to control everything. I really think that's the rub for the right. And, and that's a hard thing for some people to accept who are used to power and used to getting their way and who believe that God himself actually set up the social hierarchy this, this way, that God you know, gave this continent you know, uh, 250 years ago to white European Protestant Christians. I think that's a deeply ingrained idea on the right that is found not just on the far right, but actually on the middle right. And, and it's, a real, it's a real problem. So those are my thoughts on political violence. And I wanna finish by saying that I endeavor to be a proponent of nonviolence. I really believe that violence in general begets violence, hate begets hate. And often the only way to break that cycle of, of hate and violence is by being the bigger person and not reciprocating. But we need to understand that being a proponent of nonviolence means understanding that, that nonviolence is not a fixed ideology. It's, it's not a set of doctrines or a collection of rules to memorize. It's more of a spectrum of ideas and an attitude towards violence that's committed more than anything else, that's committed towards minimizing human suffering and liberating the oppressed. So, so those are my thoughts today. And I wanna hear from you now. What are your thoughts about um, what I just said? What are your thoughts about political violence? And specifically, you know, I'd love to talk about the political violence we're seeing today. You know, what are your thoughts about what we're seeing? What do you think? What do you think's behind it? What's what's driving it all? And you can always uh, put your comments in the chat column too. And I'm seeing people have already done that. I'll go. Yeah, Rodney. Uh, first of all, Aaron, you touched on so much stuff. There's really not much to add because as you were talking, I think of something and then you talk about it. My oh, thoughts, okay. I was like, oh, well, I don't need to speak on that. But overall, I think one of the problems we're having in comparing the two groups is we're not distinguishing between protesters and rioters. Uh huh. This kind of came up last summer. Um, yeah, it kind of it came up last summer in that a lot of people were painting all the protesters as equal to the rioters when the rioters were a very small percentage of the groups that were marching. 
similarly, I haven't heard anybody really refer to what happened last week in the insurrectionists. We haven't made a distinction between the people that marched into the Capitol and those who perhaps were just outside protesting. Um, but in thinking about this, I think the fact that we're not making that distinction, the bottom line is breaking the law, I think, is never the right answer to protesting how you feel about something. So the people marching may be considered righteous in their marching, like marching to protest is considered okay. But breaking the law, i.e. damaging buildings or marching on the Capitol is not okay. And I think we, if we make that distinction, that kind of helps, at least it helps me in not painting the whole group as violent people who are breaking the law. Like there's a distinction between righteous protest and violent rioter. Thank you for that point of view, Rodney. And um, yeah, Max uh, commented, I, I think it might depend on which laws are, are broken. Um, yeah. Go ahead, Max. I was gonna say, just add on that. I think that's a, a, that's a very natural response and I think that makes sense, but then I'm reminded, I mean, I mean, cause it's the weekend, right? Like MLK and those who marched with him broke laws left and right, um, but did so, it's about like which laws. And I think Rodney, when you, when you specifically like, you know, smashing windows and hurting for, for me, it's like, okay, is it, is it, is it the pain caused like to others? Is it like hurting people? Is it hurting buildings? I mean, cause we can talk about like curfews and, you know, dis disobeying, like if, if cops say you like disperse and you don't like that's breaking the law technically, but it's such a gray area in that line of, I think there, if the laws are unjust, it is just to break them, right? Um, and I think we can all agree on those um, obvious ones. It gets a lot murkier in the context of, like you were saying, Rodney, of is this a subsection of, you know, other uh, group that is otherwise following the rules? And I think that, I mean, there are dissertations, <laughs> livelihoods, you know, committed to trying to figure out what does it mean to be lawful and ethical? And is law, does law equal ethics and equal morals? And the answer is no, but then how do we decide as a society where that, where that line is? And I think um, I'm Jen or Ashley, whichever one put it in the chat, the idea of respectability comes, comes around a lot um, in those kinds of instances, right? Because it's like, if, if, if society agrees that, yeah, these are technically laws, but it's still, you can still be respectable and break these laws. But once you break this law, that is now threatening the system, right? And I put under that, this, this, is, now, this is now threatening the status quo. So like the attack on banks, looting, like those, those pieces, it's like, no one, very few people were hurt. And I think, um, and not to say that that justifies it, but just in the scope of like, when I keep hearing these comparisons, it's like, even with the destruction of property, the destruction, breaking of windows, the looting of like a target, um, in, in many ways in my mind are a completely different category than literally traveling across the entire country 
to protest a democratic election. Like even the people who were there that didn't go inside the Capitol decided to listen to fraudulent lies and go and protest and demand that the an election decided by tens of millions of, of people and especially the election within non-white areas and states was fraudulent just because they didn't agree with it, right? So it's like, even the people that are there, it's like this, you should not even be here. And the fact that you are led to this violence. I think it's important to, to separate those out. They also just think, I mean, to take, to take the looting and protests of last summer, if you all remember, Target like put out a statement, <laughs> like, uh, I mean, um, uh, if anyone remembers, a, a mom and pop store, you know, that Fox News was trying to be like, look at these terrible looters, they burned down the store, like, is this, this is Black Lives Matter, this is what it means, destruction of property. And the, the mom and pop, uh, like, of that store, like, burn it to the ground. Like, we, we don't care. It's a building, the, and your voices need to be heard. You are protesting what you need to be protesting. Burn our, burn our store to the ground. And I think that was shared a lot. And it was so moving for me and for many people, because it was exactly naming what we're talking about, right? There is a right place to protest injustice. And there is a there is a righteous anger and a righteous um, form of destruction that we are very scared by. But when named, even by the people being, you know, having their store burned down is saying, no, burn it to the ground. We don't care. Like those people are right. Like it's a building, no big deal. Um, that really jolts us into, into remembering, oh yeah, we're just listening to this respectability politics. We're, we're, we believe in the things that we're supposed to do to be respectable and not to cross the line of respectability. And for a lot of us, for me, for much of America, that is deeply tied to white supremacy and those in power. And if that's threatened, that's no longer respectable. But if it's not threatened, then, you know, you can kind of do whatever you want. Anyway, I said a lot, um, sorry for, for rambling. I, this is a very complicated topic. <laughs> Thanks, Max and Rodney. Um, anybody want to respond to that or add their own thoughts? Have a question. Hey, I had a, a thought on this, um, maybe a little bit more uh, international in perspective. Please, yes. I have a friend in France who wrote me and he said something like, we watch with concern and support at what's happening, and he put quote unquote in the greatest nation, um, which was kind of funny, but kind of serious at the same time. Um, I think that, you know, there's a, there's a kind of privilege in American protests. Uh, I was listening to uh, the story a little bit more about Jamal Khashoggi the Saudi-born journalist in the US who wasn't even that critical of the uh, administration there. Um, he was helping a young man who was critical. And what they were doing was the, the Saudi regime creates like 
false uh, social media accounts to put down dissenters. And so they basically started using the same cyber warfare techniques to actually balance the conversation. Um, but Jamal Khashoggi was engaged um, and he went to get some sort of certificate or paper in Turkey and that's where he was killed. Um, I make that point to say that in a lot of countries you don't get to protest. In fact, Saudi Arabia is, I think, one of the number one purchasers of US weapons. And it's understood by Saudi people that those weapons will be turned on them should they protest. So, you know, I think like when people hear protest, there's an understanding that nobody's going to do an F 16 strike on your protest. But there's places where people will even go to that end because they know there's no other way to go. So for me, by the time people are willing to die, you know something's wrong and that there is no path but violence. Here there is a, a structure and a kind of constitution that more or less serves to affect change. Well, for black people, it did not. And there was a period of tension, but even here it was, it wasn't quite a revolution. I'm talking about the sixties, but you saw in the civil war where obviously it got to. So, you know, I think about this term, um, kind of moral justification where, um, I think I first read it in a military context where, you know, when you send a soldier to do something, you know, everybody, officers have to be able to look that person in the eye and say, we're, we're saving someone or we're doing something that's right. Because if you, if you can't do that, eventually that, that um, leadership structure will change because people will start to not believe. Um, I think political violence to, from, from an individual perspective, if you can go to sleep at night and say, I did something right and I saved someone or something like I'm gonna die either way, then it makes sense. I'm from a place where it's like that. Mm -hmm. um, here, I think there are still many ways to make one's voices heard. You know, and and I don't, you know, I'm not judging anybody that that did that on on you know either side, left or right. But I, I just think that there's there's ways to make structural changes. And as a Christian, I think change comes about through the gospel. And when I say the gospel, I don't mean like verses to people, but I mean like there's a dialogue that goes from neighbor to neighbor to neighbor to neighbor that changes yeah. the culture where people engage. You know, I don't think your vote is enough. I think your community participation is enough to affect change over time, right? I don't think like white people were going to vote for black people's rights when they're not around black people. Like, you know, it's not one of them. But when we're all in the same community, you go, this is my friend. Why don't, does my friend have the same rights as I do? Then people change. So 
Um, I just think like there's a lot of things going on here, but I, I just think that there's a, for me, there's a bigger picture and I kind of wanted to share some of that. Uh, just great, awesome perspective there, JP. Thank you so much for those, for, for that. Um, really value that. Thank you. Makes a lot of sense. Um, yes, uh, other thoughts, responses. Um, one of the things that I think about, first of all, Aaron, I really appreciate the way that you uh, talked about um, kind of the, the differences in acts of violence, because one of the things I think is so hard to see is equating the insurrection in the Capitol with um, violence that took place in protests in light of George Floyd and racial um, protests throughout the country, because the instances are just not even close to the same, you know, people responding who've been marginalized and persecuted and, um, you know, are fighting for civil rights is entirely different than people um, creating an insurrection in the capital of a nation against a democratically uh, elected candidate. You know, it's-, it's yeah, And they're fighting- they even equate and, and, those two things. Um, so I appreciate you separated them, but it's, yeah, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. I didn't, I just wanted to say, I. And, and just to be clear, I think what you're saying is that the people in the Capitol were fighting to remain in power, to remain supreme, right? To remain, to keep, to keep their power uh, that oppresses others. This wasn't a, even though they think they're fighting for liberation, they're not. They're oh, fighting yeah. to remain in power. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead, Bob. No, no, you're absolutely right. And yeah. And so it's hard in the conversation to have those kinds of differences because I don't think we've seen a, a kind of display of violence in the same way from the left in our recent history. So that's one thing that I just, I think about in the conversation is it's hard to have an open conversation because we don't have modern equivalents of those violences to discuss necessarily. Um, and I'm sure that's not actually true. It's just in my perception right now. The other thing is I think about um, kind of the way Andre Henry talks about violence um, as a black man, um, and um, and it, it kind of, he didn't make this equation, but it does seem to me that, you know, telling violent protesters uh, that they shouldn't, you know, loot or burn buildings or break windows or destroy anything is sort of akin to telling somebody who's starving that they can't steal food. Um, and, you know, I don't know what to make of that, except to say that I think violence is, is an inevitable part of a, a system of broken injustice, particularly for one that has been as broken for as long um, as we have here. So I don't have any solutions for that. I just, it's heartbreaking. Thanks, Bob. Other thoughts, comments, responses? I can resonate a little bit with what you know, JP was mentioning. You know, I think we need a little bit more curiosity in the sense that, um, and, and Max mentioned it in here, the rural urban divide, like it is, that is like down the middle, like it, it's been this way for decades and it's, it happens in every single election. Rural areas are conservative, urban areas 
are more liberal and progressive. And I think we need a little bit more curiosity about like, why, <laughs> I mean, why, why do people fundamentally see the world? I think it's a worldview lived experience sort of thing. And for someone like myself who grew up in a town that's 90% white, you don't have, it's not that people who live in urban areas are super woke and everybody else is, is not. I think you are ignorant if you grow up in, in areas that are homogenous. That doesn't mean you're stupid. It just means you're ignorant of other people's experiences because your experience is so homogenous that you, you don't have the capacity to fully understand what your neighbors are going through if they're minorities. And you assume the world is the way that you have the world. That is an ignorant way to do it, but I don't mean that in a stupid way. Um, I was fortunate enough to leave. <laughs> I went to the East Coast and I got new experiences and it radically changed my point of view about the world. But I think we need a little bit of curiosity to say, we, we seem both the right seems like they, they lose their heads that, the, that people in urban areas are voting for more progressive social principles. And then those in urban areas are, can't, can't wrap their mind around the reasons why people in rural areas every single time almost universally vote for conservative values. And I think we need to dig into what that lived experience is because to change hearts and minds, you can't argue on social media, you gotta go talk to people. Like uh, you said, it's like we, we, as people who have had these experiences, I have to go talk to them and say, look, you know, I need to sit down with them. And like, this is my experience. I, have, I now have had an opportunity to live with people of color and this is what I've learned. And it is radically different than what you think the world is. And it's up to us to get engaged in that conversation with them. Thanks, thanks, Nathan. Uh, Lakin, I see that you've uh, turned on your video. Did you wanna share something? I just wanna give you that, op that opportunity. I actually did, yeah. Um, good to see you guys. Um, gosh, there's so much, uh, so many different things brought up. It's, I'm a very scatterbrained person. So I'm gonna try to keep it together. But um, I kind of wanted to respond, touch on a couple of things that you talked about and that Bob talked about. Um, the first thing that came to mind um, was when you were talking about how people try to equate the far right and far left. And I think like, uh, kind of like Bob said, I'm in agreement that I, I'm not sure that, especially in, in my lifetime, that we've been able to closely see an equivalent of a far left, like a, a very violent, oppressive, far left if there even is one and um that's to me it's a it's kind of a false equivalency for what we're seeing because i think that um uh, i think that what what we call the far left right now is not very far left <laughs> if that makes sense um it it honestly it reminds me a lot of like the hunger games and i'm not sure if anybody's ever uh, read the books or anything, but I, I did some research because I was just very curious into where, where, why the author um, came up with these ideas. And if you're not familiar with the books or the movies, um, basically she kind of wanted to talk about the, these ideas of war and oppression and systems of oppression because her father um, was in the military. And so what you see in the scope of the Hunger Games is this oppressive system of you know, the, the capital, which we could very much relate to in, in our system of violent capitalism and oppression in our system. Um, but basically what you see is kind of this, this reaction to that, which is at first a just reaction, 
But then you see it go too far where it's like, well, we need to do to them exactly what they did to us. So we need to kill their children. We need to do these things. And so her point in, in kind of like the whole series is like, if you're not careful about what you hate, you become the thing that you hate. And so I think we haven't quite gotten there as um, a total United States. That's that was the first thing I kind of thought about. The second thing was, um, I thought of that quote um, by JFK that said, let me see if I can get it right, that those who make peaceful revolution impossible make violent revolution inevitable or something like that. And um, I think that that's important to note here because like you were saying earlier, you know, I think that there's a big difference between um, the, the violence that you see um, as a reaction to stay in power and to continue to oppress and the violent, the, the violence in an art, I'm not sure if you would consider it the same kind of violence, but the violence against say like the buildings that were burned or whatever. And there's this video, um, last thing I wanna say is there's this video um, that I posted a little while back. Um, gosh, I can't remember what the name of it is. I'll try to put it in the chat after I'm off of here. But um, this woman um, is just captured on um, video talking about uh, the riots, the rioters, the small percentage of rioters um, after the Black Lives Matter protest. And the video is called How Can We Win? I'm sure you can look that up. How Can We Win? But you know, and I, I just love the video. I could watch it like a, a hundred times because this black woman is is giving kind of like a history in the systems of violence and oppression, like black Wall Street being burned down and like, you know, all these different violent acts throughout our American history. And her whole point is like, if, if, if this is the way that we continue as a country, like how can we win? How can we even get on the same level. And so she's like, at the end of the video, she's like, as far as I'm concerned, they can burn this whole place to the ground, you know, because she's just like, it, it, we don't own anything. It's not ours. Like, why should we care about something being burned down that we never even had the chance to, you know, own or have ownership of? And so that's kind of what I was thinking of. Like, I, I also am like you, like, I don't advocate for violence just in and of itself but at the same time i'm kind of like i can understand where it gets to the point where like the quote said right it's like if you don't make that peaceful revolution possible then what else do you think is going to happen like you make people desperate like uh, i think maybe bob said it's like okay then you don't give people food then what where do you expect them to get the food so that's kind of where i lie in that spectrum like i don't advocate for it but i can understand when it gets to that point, it's kind of like, well, you created that. So what do you expect? Thank you so much. Yeah, excellent thoughts. Like, can anybody want to continue to you know, want to respond to that um, comment on, on their own? Just just real quickly. I, I, yeah, I copy and pasted that JFK quote. In there. Yeah, I saw that. Thank you. I, I mean, we're just as a gentle reminder that People of color have tried peaceful protests for years and years and years. You know, kneeling at the national. Oh, we lost you there, Herman. Oh, but I, but we're, we're following. Uh, I'm following your school of. I mean, I'm following yeah. your thinking. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, kneeling, kneeling at a football game during the national anthem was considered just the most horrific, awful, terrible thing that could be done. 
So, I mean, it's that's what uh, I remember one of the discussions in the gathering uh, last summer that we had with Bob. I was kind of like, I, I think we've left people of color in very little choice but to burn some stuff down just to get somebody's attention because all the peaceful all the peaceful attempts are just you know viewed with contempt by white America so um, any any rate that JFK quotes pretty dead on yeah thanks Lake for bringing that up yeah, some really good stuff. Um, and that reminds me too, Herman, of just noting real quick, the way that you can get to the heart of what these underlying symptoms and issues are and why I'm fully convinced that you cannot separate it from whiteness. The Boston Tea Party, the most celebrated part of our nation's founding was domestic terrorism, was white folks going and dressing up like Native Americans. So that's a whole another thing. And, and boarding a British ship, vandalizing and destroying thousands of dollars worth of goods to get the British's attention that they were under unjust rule, right? And that is hung, that, that is the banner rallying cry of the most American thing, right? No that, taxation without representation. Exactly. Right. And it's like, and these are the myths that we tell ourselves. And, and so then we see, yeah, the kneeling, my God, it's like, yeah, let, we're totally fine with domestic terrorism of destroying like these, these goods to get the attention of ta being taxed, but people are saying, please don't kill us. And kneeling is like that, that traitor that's un-American, that's unpatriotic, like the president said, get those sons of bitches off the field. Literally about kneeling football players. The president of the United States said that. Like that is how you can so quickly, it's like, this is an ideology. You don't actually believe in, in that kind of like that we should protest against unjust rule. You believe that you should protest against unjust rule when you feel disempowered. Um, yeah, it's a lot of good stuff. Yeah, you know, I, th I think it's helpful to remember that America has, I think there's something endemic about political violence in America because of our history being about, you know, armed resistance and, you know, frankly, killing over being oppressed in taxes. I mean, and it wasn't just about taxes, right? But it was the right to kind of self-govern and, and, and be autonomous from England. But there, the rallying cry was no taxation without representation, right? And, and you know, uh, I, 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 think, I think people on the left both, and the right both kind of idolize the American Revolution and say, no, that was justifiable violence. And I'm kind of like, well, let's, what, what's, well, what would have happened if we didn't revolt? Well, maybe it would have been more like Canada. And what's wrong with that? <laughs> I don't know. I just, I just no longer idolize the American Revolution as I once did. You know, I, I used to be very romantic about it. I'm like, well, it was all very necessary. And all that killing was necessary. I'm like, eh, maybe not, you know? Um, I don't think that way. Anyway, maybe I'm getting off topic, but any other thoughts or comments today? Uh, what you just said, Aaron, kind of made me think about how a lot of people just, there's this romanticizing of rebellion in like the mythology of America. And, and uh, 
I think when you look at a lot of the, these little video clips that have come out from the people that were storming the Capitol, they didn't seem very distressed. Like they were, they seemed, a lot of them were like, they were very jovial and they were like, they were like having fun. There's this kind of romanticized idea that this is like, you know, this is like, it's like fun for them. It's like exciting. It's almost like the evangelical person who's excited that the world is ending, that it, there's kind of a similar thing. It made me think of like how people think that uh, the apocalypse is like, the, it's almost something that they fantasize about that people, you know, like, oh, the zombie apocalypse, it's like a fun thing to think about. And it's like, no, this is horrible. This is horrifying. Uh, so that was interesting to me because it's it's almost this thing that people are excited about and like want to have happen. And because we have this history of really romanticizing these, these rebellious kind of um, destructive things like the Boston Tea Party, like what Max was talking about is, you know, should we reflect on that in the way we do as this really righteous and, and, and you know, exciting thing? I think that's interesting. A, a second thing I was thinking about kind of going back to what Nathan was talking about, as far as reaching different areas of the country, like these more rural areas, and how do we how do we interact with people and get them, you know, kind of get the message across that we need to be more um, interacting with different people from different parts of the country to, to kind of to ease and calm some of these these tensions and, and unify us more. Uh, I was really thinking about how the electoral college works and uh, I'm so against the electoral college. The more I learn about it, the more interesting it is. I mean, obviously it is, it is a product of appeasing the Southern slave owning states. So really in the conception of the electoral college, I mean, it's, it's, it's problematic right from the get go. It, it, the reason that it exists in the first place and the ripple effect of it. I mean, I always thought like, okay, this is just a function of like how the presidential election works, but really it goes so much beyond that in the way that campaigning works, in the way that we think about ourselves. When you look at the electoral map, the red states and the blue states, uh, it, it kind of keeps us backed into certain corners in, in a way that if we had one person, one vote, you get to think, you know, all these all these red states, you know, they may not all be as red as we think they are, but because we have the system set up the way it is, it's like, well, this is red America, this is blue America, and the, the Electoral College keeps those divides more locked in place. You know, it, it kind of exacerbates this problem of this is this area of the country, this is this area of the country, and it's not actually that stark if we allowed it to be one person, one vote, and then it would change the way politicians are campaigning uh, because right now there's certain areas of the country that they maybe need a politician that they disagree with to go there and campaign there and listen to those different kind of ideas. And they don't do that because they only need to worry about like five or six states right now in order to be elected, uh, these kind of uh, moderate states. So it, it creates these echo chambers uh, that I think prevent some of that unification from happening. Anyway, this is like a big long spiel that's a little off topic, but uh, I just thought power dynamics. No, it's, it's, it's all about power dynamics and power and right. how it's allocated. And uh, I, I think you're seeing a lot of nodding heads when you, when you started criticizing the Electoral College. I think we're all kind of on the same page about that one. That's, that's good stuff, Dan. Um, seeing a good conversation ensuing here in the chat. Uh, 
Other other thoughts before we conclude today, maybe one more reflection or thought. Love that we have such a um, such a variety of folks chiming in. Um, another great conversation. Um, I, I sometimes I worry that we talk a lot about politics, maybe too. But I'm always but but I'm but I think it's something we all want to talk about. <laughs> so it's it's important. All right. Well, everybody, I think that kind of concludes us for today. Um, thanks so much for being here and having a robust conversation. And, um, you know, I love that we can do this and, and not come up with all the answers and acknowledge the nuances and the difficulties in a variety of different positions. And um, it's wonderful. And uh, thank you so much for being a part of it. Go, go in peace. If you want to hang out and chat, we can hang out and chat a little longer. But otherwise, we are formally dismissed.